Welcome to Two Queers for Questions. I'm Agnes Berinsky. And I'm Ezra Thurman. We are two trans Jews with open hearts and idol-smashing hammers wandering through the Jewish calendar asking four questions about each holiday. Nice. Idol-smashing hammers. Hello, Ezra. Hello, Agnes. This is a big day. It's the holiest podcast of the year. The podcast of podcasts. The Sabbath of Sabbaths. We're talking about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Um, one of the most intense and one of the most widely observed Jewish holidays. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give a rundown of what Yom Kippur is, the basics. Yom Kippur happens on the 10th day of the month of Tishrei. So the 10th day, the first of the month of Tishrei is Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and the 10th day of the month is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. In between are called the Aser Yemei Shuvah, the Ten Days of Repentance. I suppose that includes Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, those ten days. It does. And um, this is the tenth day of repentance. It's like the deadline. And this is the day that we ask forgiveness from God. And ideally, we've already spent the month of Elul and the first nine days of repentance repairing our relationships with other people. And this is kind of a day between the community and God and the individual and God. There is a fast. There's a fast from sundown the night before to sundown at the end of the day. What you do for this fast is you don't eat, you don't drink even drinking water. You don't wear leather, at least what leather shoes. I'm not sure about the specifics of that. Um, you don't bathe or wash yourself. You don't put on perfume or lotion and no sex. And that's a fast. It is, for in the traditional observance it is a day where you're in the synagogue for really a lot of hours like the whole time almost there are five official prayer services and there's multiple torah readings and they over the years have gotten longer and longer and just they blend into each other now and are just this day of talking to god and you said this when we talk about Rosh Hashanah, but it, the image is that on Rosh Hashanah, the book of life is written, but then before it's sealed. It's like, this is, it's gone to print. That's right. No revisions but, are possible. Yes. This is the last day that you can revise the book of life that God is writing. I think the idea there is that God is deciding what's going to happen for that whole, for the whole year. And 
what good things are going to happen, what bad things are going to happen. In the famous phrase of the Unatanatokef prayer, who will live and who will die, who by fire and who by water, who at an old age and who at a young age. And it's very intense. There's a lot of foreboding. Some people wear all white. Um, it's an old custom, and it's, it's wearing all white mostly, well, it's sort of as a symbol of, of being purified of sin, but it's also an imitation of a white shroud that people are buried in, in the, in the Jewish tradition. So wearing all white, not eating, it's, you kind of become an almost disembodied, non, like, angelic, really. Um, you become kind of angelic and transcend your bodily needs. Uh, that sounds great. Yeah. And there's some other, there's certainly other details. There's tons of liturgy and Torah readings, but, uh, you know, we'll get into some of that. We're here to ask four questions. Uh, what's our first question, Agnes? Our first question is, is Yom Kippur a solemn or a joyful day? I'm really into this question. I feel like I want to, I want to hear a defense of the joyfulness first, because I feel like I think in my sort of cultural imagination of the holiday, it's not Purim, it's not Sukkot, it's not like a time of celebration, it's a time the stakes are high, it's a lot of intensity. So why yeah. why would we say it's a joyful holiday? Why would we say we would think of it as a joyful day? Well, yes, it's 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 the solemnity of it is clear, and it is sort of the first feeling you think of, but it somewhere in rabbinic literature it's called the most joyful day of the year or one of the most joyful days of the year um i can't remember who calls it in a sort of pun yom kippurim yom kippurim like uh a day that is like purim uh in that it's incredibly joyful and it's kind of becomes a party. It becomes a joyful party. And this is a aspect that I think uh, is a little bit lost uh, post temple because what this holiday used to be when there was a temple in which animal sacrifice was practiced, there was a Yom Kippur ritual in which the high priest did an atonement ritual with these two goats. Um, one one of the goats is slaughtered, and one is the scapegoat. The one is like he symbol the 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 high priest symbolically puts all the communal sins onto the head of this goat, and someone else leads the goat off into the wilderness, never to return. Just like get all that stuff away from us, and the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, the holiest part of the temple, and says this unutterable word, the name of God, which no one else knows how to say, and no one else ever says out loud. 
and then comes out and it's like the ritual is done and everyone goes nuts. Everyone is so relieved and happy that it like the process went through. We're all forgiven. Let's like dance. Let's, uh, I, I think it was a traditional time of like, like making marriage matches right at that moment. Oh, wow. Um, I wish I, if I did better research, I would have a good source for that. I, well, but like... as it is, I just thought I heard it somewhere. Um, so yeah. And, and I, I just want to say like, I, I feel that a little bit still I actually feel it not a little bit very intensely at the end of Yom Kippur, this euphoria of we went through this thing that was very intense and we're done with the ordeal and we're going to be okay. We can think of ourselves as forgiven. And I think especially if you do the fast and you, and you spent log all this time in, in prayer, you really feel it ending and, um, the joyful way so maybe that's not a good advertisement for the day being joyful because like the end of it feels really happy but it seems like it it it's an essential part of the holiday that this forgiveness euphoria well which feels even like i mean it feels very like the fasting pulls it, it both makes us disembodied as you were saying like pulls us out of our bodies but also it makes this experience of relief and fragility physical and makes it mm-hmm. you can't escape it it's not an idea it's and i and i think about franz rosenzweig famously going to like stumbling into a synagogue uh young Kippur afternoon had been a secular jew and then just had this spiritual revelatory experience that reset the whole course of his life and wrote star of redemption and that sort of i think there's like an memory of this incredible joyful shining transcendence that was his description of the day i just keep picturing like it was like a light that was shining into this dark square in whatever mm-hmm. city he was at the time so that it does feel it feels to like me, the, the day the afternoon up through Neila is like pervaded with that kind of brightness even though it's about the relief of its being over yeah but also the joy of the day it that is embodied in that those the final the ending of the day is like change is possible and like what most weighs us down about the past can somehow be looked at dealt with and then left behind which like it is the relief of believing that is is really real to me well, it makes me, I mean, there was, as you were talking about the scapegoat, I was like, oh, this is sort of a Marie Kondo of a moral Marie Kondo moment of like, does this behavior spark joy? If not, I'm like <laughs> taking it to the goodwill. Um, yeah. And I, which does feel joyful. I also was just remembering Rabbi Sharon Browse gave this sermon earlier this year about the scapegoat ritual. And it was around the time that um, Derek Chauvin was convicted of murdering George Floyd 
And mm. she talked about not the innocence of Derek Chauvin, but the fact that I think there was a cultural desire to like put all the, sh- all the sins of um, white supremacy of our culture on this person. And because this person was being convicted, like feel like we were off the hook. And so she was yeah. trying to navigate how to talk about the scapegoat in that context. And I, yeah, she pulled on Rambam who said that it's not actually a, the sins aren't actually going on the head of the scapegoat. It's a symbolic thing, of course, typical Rambam, but right. it's a moment, as you say, of lightness of like, imagining that change is possible and also like what does it feel like to live in the world where where these things have been lifted from our hearts and where this you know even if even if they're not actually gone the ability to imagine what it feels like in your body to live in a just world a shining world a world where your own behavior lines up with your ideals um that is incredibly joyful even if it's not even if there is a sense in the brain of like oh this is symbolic this is an actual I'm not no longer responsible for things that I've done. Yeah, it's a, it's a shift in how you're thinking about what you've done. What's I mean I I think I think we have to acknowledge that like this is a for a lot of people this is an emotionally difficult day and it seems like it gathers all the ways that we've been told by our families or our traditions that like we should be ashamed. Um, and for queer people, we have, we have a lot of that, to, you know, to different degrees. We have been told to feel ashamed and, um, and told to feel like regret and told to change things that we know that we, can't or shouldn't change about ourselves um you know we have pride we have pride month and we have pride all year long and um that's a important and life-saving thing and here comes this day about like regret and a little and shame too is part of it um and how i mean something that you were asking when we were preparing for this episode is like how can this regret shame pounding your chest tearing your shirt like how can that be useful to queer people and what do we have to watch out for with that <laughs> and like yeah. i mean yeah that because that's a lot of the solemnity are those feelings and I think that's why a lot of queer people don't want to get near this ritual. Right. Right. I mean, it's to approach it from the other side too. There's this sort of sanitized idea of pride that is often marketed to us now. I mean, I remember the, that like recent Hulu FX pride special thing, which had a lot of really wonderful stuff in it. Each episode, I didn't watch all of them, but the ones that I watched ended with like, here is a young person carrying a rainbow flag with their head held high and like every the future mm-hmm. is bright and everything is good. Yeah. And it's just like, that's not what this whole movement movements have been about, has been about. And yeah, that's, um, not, that's not what we need. <laughs> right. And like, I mean, that's where I think all the stuff of, you know, there's the martyrology and the listing of the martyrs, the rabbis who were martyred by the Romans. And then, you know, I think we could think about 
so many things, whether it's um, all the trans women who've been murdered over the many years and especially in recent or like, you know, in in chillingly large numbers up to the present day um, and Pulse Massacre and the AIDS epidemic, you know, like they're just things that are, um, I think by carrying those memories and that awareness into this desire to imagine change and to imagine a future lightened by the possibility of transformation. That's what, that feels like the healthy way to do it, to, to hold both of those things, because it's not sort of like, and here we are now, 2021, we're like marching into the future. Everything's bright and shining. There's joy. There's this possibility of hope and of change and reckoning, but we're, we're carrying with us like how long this journey has been and with all the, the pain that's been a part of it. And I think that that's. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that when regret and even shame is useful, um, it's because it implies um, a kind of pride. It, because because you were because we're supposed to be great and we failed to be as great as we could be like um the the sense of regret comes from the fact that you are a, a cherished servant of a queen even a child of of the queen and you want to honor that i mean I was, I was, I keep looking at this, um, these lines from the, this 19th century German rabbi named, uh, Samson Raphael Hirsch, very influential of orthodoxy. Um, and he's, this is just a recapitulation of ideas that are all over Yom Kippur through history, but, um, every sin you have committed, he says, however small, even in the mind and the heart, immediately brings with it a curse, namely that it makes you less capable of doing good and further inclined to sin. And I think that that, what that really is about is how doing things that you know are wrong or that you know you want to do better than that, um, it like hardens you into a mode where you you stop believing that it's possible to do better. You're kind of like, maybe there's a better way to be, but... It's not possible. I just am shitty. I'm just this shitty way. I can't do anything about that. And repentance, which like begins with regret, is like an unhardening. And it opens a closed door to like progress to who you want to be, who you who you'd rather be. I love that a lot, and I feel like softening is kind of an incredible word is the opposite of hardening. I mean, that makes me, I don't want to rush out of that thought, but it feels connected to our next question. Um, and to that experience mm. of fasting, does it feel, I want yeah. to keep that, the energy of that thought going. And should we, is it uh-huh. okay to shift to this next? Let's talk about fasting. Um, what's our second question, Ezra? The second question, what does fasting do? I, I guess the first thing I want to say is that it's like, Fasting is um, something that can bring up like problems people have with uh, with food stuff, and um, 
I think it's legitimate to not fast if you're, if you're, if it even just gets you back into a mode of like an eating disorder that you have struggled with. There are, and, and if, or if you're just feeling like not up for it physically, like there's all kinds of reasons not to fast. Um, to me, the reasons to fast are that it, I guess that it wakes you up in some way. Fasting changes the way your brain works. I feel like I wanted to, to tie it to what you were saying a second ago with the Rabbi Hirsch line about repentance softening us and it's an unhardening. Um, and I wonder if there's some part of what happens with fasting is that we get softened. We're sort of like the, whether it's the armor of being well-nourished and sort of swaggering through as physical beings or, or whether it's the weakness of not eating food. I mean, does that feel like the same thing as what you're... I mean, really, actually, for me, the most powerful thing about it is fasting brings home your vulnerability as a as a body. Um, if you don't eat or drink for a whole day, you feel that you will die if you like that's all it takes you know you you need that sustenance so much and it reminds you that you're not um it reminds you that you're vulnerable i think um if you did it for a second day in a row like you might die you like so it it sort of puts your dependence on the food and water that you are lucky to get into the forefront of your mind. And I think that that creates a gratitude and humility. Yeah. I mean, I got so excited looking back at the book of Jonah and that question of vulnerability and humility. This time reading it through, I noticed that there's this, at least the translation I was looking at translated these two words, both as fainting, which not all translations do, but these two verses are in weirdly parallel sections of the text in chapter two, verse eight and chapter four, verse eight. And the first one is describing Jonah inside the big fish um, about to pray, having fled from the request, the instruction to go to Nineveh. And it says, um, um, and so like my, the translation I was looking at said like my soul sainted within, fainted within me and I remembered God. And then the second one is in after post Nineveh, after the um, main events of the book, Jonah is sitting in the desert and there's a plant that grows and the plant dies and the sun beats down on Jonah's head and it says, and it says mm. uh, he became faint and he asked his soul requested that his, to, of his soul, that his soul die, or he asked that his soul would die. And I, these two words are hitatef and um, italef. And one of them is the word we use for um, wrapping tefillin around the arm, hitatef. And both have this sense um, of like, 
I think I think it's Talib. I think I think it's he touched. Oh yeah, Talib. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the yes, prayer yes. shawl. Um, Thank you. Um, yeah, and these two words are are one letter apart, and they just sound the same. Hitatif and Hitalif. Hitalif and. Yeah, what what is it bringing up? So sorry to interrupt. No, I mean, it, I feel like it's it feels like to me that there there are these two kinds of weakness, physical weakness in Jonah, and the first one is a physical weakness where the reaction is to turn to God and to say like, my body has been overpowered. Um, there's some vulnerability in my physical mortal being, and so I ask God to be the one to lift me up or to to fill me, um, and then. The second one is a vulnerability that is not about turning to God, saying, take me, lift me, hold me. It's saying, I just would rather die. Like, this is so awful, I'd rather die. And I feel like that, to me, is like the ca- capturing what the the potential um, danger of and the potential value of fasting in Yom Kippur is, is that if you if you have this experience of your physical vulnerability and physical weakness, and it is an opportunity for you to then turn to God, I feel like that's practice for a habit that can serve you in moments of weakness and vulnerability and crisis in life, as opposed to um, feeling like the weakness triggers in you this desire to be in control or a desire to just like say, fuck it all. Um, I mean, this is, I I was glad you mentioned um, disordered eating earlier, because I feel like there's something about control is often tied to anorexia in the sense that like, I want to have control over my body and and what I put into my body and what what I let out and that that I feel like is is the um, is the other kind of felt weakness where you feel yourself to be weak and you want to exert a tighter grip on yourself and those are I mean those are also relationships that you can have to um, morality and to just action like is it something that you say I'm a mortal being who is flawed God help me do the right thing? Or are you saying, I've just got to punish myself more and be stronger and then I'll be a better moral person. Like those are two very different approaches to. Yeah. Good situation. Yeah. And I will say, I, I feel like I've almost never seen um, in Jewish literature anywhere, the idea that fasting is like self-punishment. Um, I think it's like a, I don't know, it's just a way of um, making the day feel viscerally different um, and potentially transformative. Um, There's this uh, line by, um, well, his name's Rabbi Abraham Heschel. He's not the Abraham Joshua Heschel who I stand from the 20th century, but uh, uh, an ancestor of his, Rabbi Abraham Heschel, said, um, "If I could, I would abolish all fast days except two, Tisha B'av and Yom Kippur, because on Tisha B'av, who could eat anyway, and on Yom Kippur, who needs to eat?" Um, Tisha B'av is this day of mourning the destruction of the temple, and like every Jewish tragedy that ever happened, coalesces on this one day. So you like, he's like. Oh, who could who could have a meal and enjoy a meal? But then on Yom Kippur, it's like the opposite. You're like, you don't need to eat is how he feels. Like you just, 
I don't. I am. Maybe I'm not sure what exactly he means, but um, something resonates about that. Like I'm just not thinking about that. Like my human body is sort of becomes a background noise to this like intensity of the the soul drama. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and again, I mean, it also. It goes back to the first question about, is this a solemn or a joyful day? There's something that is a little bit both about, about fasting. Um, it's, it, you kind of feel your death coming toward you um, when you're fasting. You're like, um, to not eat is like touching death. Um, and you feel how weak your body is. And how it would die if you didn't, if you continued to not eat or drink. And um, in re- recent years, I've been asking myself on Yom Kippur, like, just just going hard and intense on this question of like, what does my life matter? Was it a good thing that I was born? Does it um, is my life worth something? Um, it, it it's like a intense thing to ask because I think lives are worth something inherently, and yet my life is so insignificant. And what's the thing of value I can really do? I feel that it has to do with being a good person, being a po- having a positive impact and not a negative impact on the world. I don't know. I, I guess something about fasting is like brings up that stuff. Brings up what's my life for anyway. You're doing an incredible job of teeing up these um, segues to next questions, I think. But um, I, mean, I just <laughs> I think you're doing an incredible job of that. I, I think finding but, them. Um, my ramblings. Because I feel like that question of what a life is worth in the bigger picture is tied to this next question about communal reckoning. I mean, there's also that, like you mentioned as we were getting ready for this, um, in the Kol Nidre, the service, the prayer that said the night, the night of before the full day of Yom Kippur, there's this permission to pray with transgressors or just the sense of like, we're in the room with ourselves as imperfect beings. And also like the room is full of all of us together who have various degrees of um, various kinds of moral checkbooks. And uh, mm. so it feels like there's yeah, this it's... reckoning of like the, the value of life and also the smallness of life in that, in that context. So yeah. So what's our third question? What's the relationship between personal reckoning and communal reckoning on Yom Kippur? Yes. Um, and I f- yeah. I feel like this is most brought to the fore in the central repeated prayer, the Vidui, which is this list, this alphabetical list, Allah through Taf, of words, things that, bad things we have done that the community all says together. We have transgressed we have lied we have murdered we have cheated we have done all these things and yeah first person plural 
a funny thing. Yeah, to have it in the first person plural is kind of an intense choice. Um, so we've been spending all this time doing soul searching and, and thinking about our own lives and our own particular realities. But here on this day, we're in a room together and we're all sort of stuck in the shul all day together. Um, so there is this shift from yeah. like my own reality to the reality of these myself and these other people here who are here with me. Yeah. Last year, I mean, in 2020, AKA 5781, Yom Kippur, for me was, I was totally alone pretty much the whole day. First time in my life that I wasn't in rooms full of people. And, and yeah, but just to say that it, it brings that out even more, like I'm alone speaking in plural about this community that felt so imaginary when just standing in my spare room with a Maxor prayer book. I mean, did you feel like you felt the we on that day? Yeah, I actually felt it as much as ever. Um, what I actually felt more is how that is a comfort. There is a side of, of that communality that is a comfort. Um, because if I doubt what my tiny, inadequate attempt at repentance could mean to the awesome god the source of the universe the queen um if it seems insignificant uh considering it part of the entire people of israel's reaching out to god in love and reconciliation it becomes this large human act this yeah i guess it's a simple thing of like who knows if i'm worthy but together um maybe we could past muster but for the same reason it's very disturbing um i mean that that vidui confession it goes through we have robbed we have murdered we have like there's a lot of terrible things on that list that most of us haven't personally done but we're asked to speak as though we did those things and and both say that like we have partial responsibility that anyone is able to do these terrible things as my guy abraham joshua heschel says i'm sorry to quote him at every turn but uh <laughs> he's with us he's with us in a community i'm probably getting the words wrong in a community few are guilty but all are responsible um like you have to care that wrong is being done and you have to feel like you have to search ethically like is there some way that i helped allow this wrong to be done i mean i just remember working in restaurants and there'd be a big party at a table and some parties at the end of the meal, they'd say there are like eight of us here, here are like eight credit cards, just split it evenly. And some tables would spend like 20 minutes 
this person owes $13.61. This person owes $11.12. This person owes $25. And, you know, I understand if one person got like three cocktails and somebody else got a half a grapefruit, you might not want to pay the same amount. But like at a certain point, we all ate at the same table and mm. arguing over those differences of dollar and cents in terms of ethical responsibility is not, it doesn't, it sort of uh, undermines the memory that we were all, we're all at this table and God's our server. So like, let's uh -huh. make it easy on her. <laughs> yeah. She's got a lot of other tables to be uh, yeah, collecting checks as, from. As Kurt Cobain put it, all in all, it's all we all are. Um, <laughs> which, which I, I've sometimes taken to mean like you can have your own personal excuse for for why like I'm not guilty, but like look at the aggregate effect of it. It's, there's something useful about looking at the aggregate effect of the society you're part of. To to like yeah, practice looking at that and watching out for um, what in yourself in some small way has perpetuated murder or theft or, or shaming of people, all kind of anything. Um, there's been a lot of that kind of thinking in uh, activism, social justice, awareness in, in recent times. Like, just look at the whole story, everything, combined and how did not only how did it happen but how do we respond to the tragedies in our world the fact of um the near genocide of indigenous people on this continent the fact of you know continual oppression violence toward and disenfranchisement of uh, well, all manners of populations, black people, trans people. Um, it does something to name the communal sin and take responsibility for it and say, like, there are ways I can change that can be a small part of righting these wrongs. Yeah, I mean, it... It changes. It requires a change in thinking about what the we is and what, what. Um, I mean, this is. I, I, I'm sure there's somebody who has like a better etymological um, rigor than I do. I mean, I sort of get kind of like fancy free in my dictionary use. But I last night I was saying when I couldn't sleep, I got down this wormhole of looking at the word Kippur for Yom Kippur, and it like familiar and sensical translation is atonement or like reckoning where, where something is like expurgated, ex, expurgated, expunged. What's the word that I'm hmm. one of those, it gets scribbled off your record or whatever. And yeah, the root of that word, if you follow it, there's like a sense of thing curved, um, which sort of makes sense. Cause it's like a bending. There's sometimes when it's used times when it's used to describe like a bending of the law, but it's like, and it comes from what word Kippur. 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 Sorry. And it comes from, there's like, you can trace it through the word um, kafaf and kaf, which is like palm of your hand. And you think of it as like a curved palm of your hand and also a sense of enclosure. And there's one definition of, well, if you 
futz with the the vowels, you get kfar, which is like a village or a town. Hmm. And there's a discussion in the Mishnah oh, about Kippur. Dis- yeah, same root Kippur. Yeah, and there's a discussion of the dis- distinction between what makes something a, a kfar and what makes something an ear an ear gedola. Um, yeah, a, how do you define a, a line between a, like a large city? Yeah, between a village and a large city, and it's you know the beginning of Jonah is like kum lechal el ir like go go to Nineveh, the great city. Um, and so I was just thinking about what does it mean to ethically reframe our role in the collective as being part of a large city versus being part of a village? And well, yeah. like in a large city, everyone's doing their own thing. It's so big, you can't even conceive of yourself as being bound up in the machinations of it. Everyone is sort of their own yeah. uh, atomized individuals. But in a village, you are like bound up in the life of this collective you're inseparable yeah. from it and so i i i got excited about thinking about yom kippur as like yom kfar like the yom the day in which we become a village as opposed to being this sort of yes large city i really love that yes a place where people are more likely to take care of each other yeah and more likely to feel obligated to look out for each other and um have more stake in each individual action um yeah it does that i love that i love that and it well it brings up stuff about like the thing in kol nidre that you mentioned um there's that line we ask permission to play to to pray with the avar yonim which like maybe means the transgressors transgressors or people who have like crossed out of the community or it's actually a very mysterious word of our yonim but it's got something to do with transgressing or crossing over it's another one of the uncomfortable things about about communal asking for communal forgiveness you're asking to wipe the slate clean for yourself but also for people who have done horrible things, things that feel unforgivable. Um, Abusers and and murderers. And um, I mean, it's a question maybe. I don't want to say that I know, but like, do we feel solidarity with the worst sinners in our community? I can't help but Stephen Miller comes to mind. Stephen Miller, the the member of Donald Trump's administration who was um, obsessed with uh, stopping all immigration and behind every extremely harsh and harmful and reckless immigration policy that hurt have hurt so many people. Um, are we supposed to feel solidarity with him? I mean, I choose him because he's because he's a Jew, and and I think that we're asked to declare that people like that contain this spark of God, and we have a desperate prayer that he is given a chance to turn his whole life around and repent and change everything about how he is in the world and honor that spark of God in himself and in other human beings and repair, do, do repair of the havoc he's caused. 
And that stuff is hard. That is hard for me. I don't... It might be why we have to have this dramatic Kol Nidre moment at the beginning of Yom Kippur where we ask permission to do that. We ask permission to pray with the with like the object with the worst sinners in the world um, because we we it feels almost undoable but I think that is a leap we're invited to try to take yeah I mean that's what a what a radical thing to posit a moment of imagination and empathy beyond what we even think is possible that it's not just like I can imagine a world where universal health care just like requires some political nudging and a generation of whatever. But like, what's the leap beyond that to the world in which um, Stephen Miller and I care about each other? And, you know, like that's that seems like almost a leap beyond what my imagination is capable of. Um, maybe from there we leap in. To me, that resonates with uh, themes, themes of our final our fourth and final question. Great. Um, Agnes, what's the fourth question? The fourth question is, what do we learn from Jonah? And Jonah from is... Jonah. Book of... my, my younger brother? Yeah. I mean, I, I he's waiting to join our recording, right? We're going to turn it over to him for the last 15 minutes. <laughs> that would be really nice. I think he'd say totally different things than I have to say about all of this stuff. <laughs> I learn a lot from my younger brother, Jonah, but in fact, uh, we're talking about the iconic Yom Kippur afternoon Haftorah reading the book of Jonah. Um, Well, do you want to just do a two sentence, two to three sentence summary of the book of Jonah? Sure. So Jonah... um... I used to do this in kids' services, actually, so I feel very well prepared. Oh, nice. uh, God says to Jonah, go to the great city Ninveh, tell people that if they don't repent, I'm going to destroy the city. Jonah says, never mind, and runs away, goes down to Tarshish, hops on, hops on a boat, thinks he can sort of like just slip under the radar. There's a big storm. Mm-hmm. The storm knocks Jonah over the edge of the boat um, after a whole well, to-do. Actually, about, like, the crew throws, the crew him, throws him over. There's a whole thing about how he goes to sleep in the bottom of the boat. And then this is already more than two sentences. It's okay, he goes to sleep okay. in the bottom of the boat. Uh, he wakes up and people are like, how are you sleeping? We're in this terrible storm. Who are you? And he's like, you know what? I think the storm is because of me. I did this thing. And they're like, he's like, you should throw me overboard. They say, no, we don't want to throw you overboard. But the storm keeps going. And then he's just throw me overboard. So they throw him overboard. And um, God sends a big fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah is in the belly of the fish. Says this prayer that we alluded to earlier. The fish spits Jonah up on dry land. Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, walks through the city, sending a message that God sent Jonah to send. Repent, repent. If you don't repent, God's going to destroy the city. Uh, everyone in the city, including the king, is like, oh boy, this is, yes, we're going to do this. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They repent. They pray. They um, sit on the ground. And sure enough, the repentances seem sincere and God decides not to destroy the city. Jonah leaves um, exhausted and a little bit delirious, ends up in the desert, and is there's sort of this like final coda, weird thorny argument between Jonah and God, where Jonah says, why did you like 
you made me look like a fool is maybe one way of reading it or like you said you were going to destroy the city why didn't you do it i feel like why did you need me to go and tell them this if you just weren't going to destroy it and if you're just going to forgive them why did you put me through all this uh, yeah and um and god says well i care about them and then there's a plant that grows up and shades jonah in the desert jonah's like oh what a relief i love this shade then the plant dies god sends a worm to eat the root of the plant and it dies and uh jonah says god why i just wish i this is where jonah says like i just want to die why did you kill that plant and god says jonah you like had that plant for about 15 minutes how why do you care so much about that plant and do you really care that much and and jonah says yes i care that much and the sort of like punchline at the end of this book is god saying if you cared that much about this plant that you had over your head for 15 minutes how much the more so should i care for this city that had so many um clueless people unaware of what they did and i love the way it ends and lots of cattle besides or like lots of it ends with like a mention of the animals um, yeah and lots of animals too so yeah that's the summary of so yeah what do we make of that story yeah i you know i used to be so confused about why we read it and something i it, maybe it was like i just read it for real more closely but it it really clicked for me at some point in in the last i don't know in the last 10 years in, in my adult life um I mean, like, I thought, like, what I would think of when I was a kid that this was about was, like, running away from God. You can't run away from God. God's gonna know. Right. Like, it's like a Freddy Krueger kind of a thing. Yeah, and you, like, and I, so I thought it was kind of that, like, you can't run away from your obligations in the world, and that's what Young People is all about, and don't try to run from your responsibility, your mission in the world, which is definitely there. What I really relate to is Jonah's um, repeated despair, the despair element. He seems to despair at absolutely every turn. Um, and he he keeps asking for death, like three times, I think. First, he, he asks the people to throw him off the ship. He's like, just kill me. Like, there's no way that I can come back from this terrible thing I've done to run away from my prophetic mission. Just throw me over the edge. And God saves his life and it's like, no, go do what I told you to do. And then and then later he, he asks for he wishes he would die, you know, because he's just in the hot sun and he's like what I get from this book is like despair is the We're tempted by despair in so many ways. And the reason despair is attractive in this dark morbid way is that like you're off the hook if there's no hope you're off the hook um he's he despairs at how unfair it is that people can be forgiven and he's like morally fatigued because what he wants to be true is like you sin and that's it you you deserve death you did something horrible, um, and I take he just takes that very seriously. 
but I think it's because he doesn't want to do the hard work of like, there's a way forward. You can come back. Yeah. Is this making sense? Totally. I mean, it just is, it's, it feels very relevant to a lot of the place. I think we've been in the U S recently of like how seductive it is to say, well, we're fucked. Like why bother? Look at how horrible everything is. Yeah. Um, yeah. The hard thing is to have hope to be like, there's so much work to do. And the thing to do is just start. Yeah. Um, it feels like Jonah, the character would rather die than face the fact that the difficult path toward living right is still open to him. Um, you know, there's this very Yom Kippur adjacent story from the Talmud about this wicked king, Menasha, who was a real guy, and he was a king of Israel, and he was an idol worshiper and a murderer. He's like the worst person you could imagine and was a disastrous ruler for Israel and oppressive. And then he's on his deathbed and he repents. He, he does a sincere deathbed repentance. And there's this story of how all the angels build a wall. They build a wall around God's throne. So his repentance can't get through. And then God digs a tunnel under the wall. And he's like, don't mess with this. This is the thing that I want. Sincere repentance. And it's like, it's almost chilling. Like, it's like, yeah. uh, just God's insistence that it's always possible to do what's right no matter how low you've sunk. I mean, that it's complicated with that because like when you've done damage that you cannot repair and you're on your deathbed and now you think like just having a feeling and saying some words, how could that be enough? You know, maybe it's not. But on some level, like that's better than nothing. That's accepted as... Like, the good is still good to God. Like, there's, um, even when it comes from the same person who's done terrible things. And that's, that seems like a personally and socially redemptive perspective to have, even though it's so difficult to hold. Well, it also frames even the, the part of God that is like, I'm going to destroy this city if you don't repent is like the initial face of God, but behind that face is this face of desire of like, I don't actually want to destroy the city. I, I want you to, you know, it's not like a, um, mm. that there's this love that comes from God that's lurking behind this impulse to punish and this anger. It's like, you guys, you were doing so well. And then, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, uh, this is the thing that I, I, I think that what you're saying is, is kind of the center of the book, but this other sh- like shade of it came to me looking at it this last time and what you're saying about whether it's enough and the sort of calculus of like 
what could outweigh, I mean, to bring Stephen Miller back, the Stephen Millers of the world, like what kind of repentance or good deeds could outweigh that? And I think it's very easy to get caught up in that sort of trying to rationalize and balance the good and the bad. And I, mm-hmm. there's in Parshat Akev, and there's a paragraph from it in the Shema about, you know, God says, you're going to go into the land of Israel and it's, you're going to defeat all your enemies and there's going to be like beautiful harvests and the fruit's all going to come to you. And you're going to forget that it's because of God. You're going to start to think it's because it's what you deserve or because you've done good things or because you're a great army or because you're really good farmers and it's actually not, and you're going to forget and you're going to take credit to yourself. And then God's going to punish you and you're going to lose and you're going to have a famine and the rain's going to stop coming down at the times you need it. And it's sort of a reminder, like the answer to when you do, when you do something good, the answer is then not to sort of pat yourself on the back and say like, look at me, I'm so good. And when you do something bad, the answer is not to say like, oh my gosh, I'm so bad. I just want to die. I'm never going to get out of this pit. It's all, and 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 the, the good things that happen yeah. to us and the bad things that happen to us, they, they're they not, it's sort of narcissistic to think that it's tied to our behavior, our successes, our failures. Like it's all, hmm. we're just sort of like the smallest piece of the picture. And it's, I feel like that's, sort of Jonah's problem is Jonah sort of makes it all about him. Like it's like he goes to Nineveh and he forgets that he's sending a message from God that is about God's relationship to Nineveh. He's like, I told these people that they were going to get destroyed if they didn't repent. And then like, you made me look like a fool. Like the city didn't get destroyed. What are they going to think of me? And God's like, Jonah, it's not about you. And then it's like with the plant, it's Jonah makes it about him. And I think that there's something about remembering that when we go into the world to do justice, to love mercy, to create, to love all these things. Like it's not, it's about like extending the love of the blessed in the world. It's like about extending holiness. It's about extending the divine and feeling that the fire of the divine sort of spread through all of creation. It's not about like, this makes me a better person or this makes me yeah. more worthy or something. And it's, or it's not yeah. like this is going to get me good things. It's like, and the same thing when we do something wrong, it's not, it's just, it's not that we are then these mad evil geniuses. We just sort of like got some phlegm in the throat of the <laughs> divine voice. We like gunked up the sink and we need some drain, you know, like it's, there's something about yeah. all of this that is trying to remember that it's, even though we're spending the whole day talking about our bad deeds and talking about wanting to do better, it's still not about us. It's about divinity. Yeah. Well, and then that's the sort of euphoric punchline of Yom Kippur. Like you're, th- you're thinking about it all day, what you've done wrong and what this means about who you are and do I even deserve to live? And then the, the, the end of the day is like, it's fine. It's all wiped clean. Just go do good. Just go start again. Like, there's nothing even there to to uh take so seriously like yes it's not about you it's not actually about your record it's like what are you gonna do next um yes and i think that's sort of the feeling that leads you just a few days later into like sukkot and the this sort of like combination of pure vulnerability and pure joy um 
which that's our next episode conveniently enough uh yeah so go to around the corner episode wise um what are we gonna say we have this we have this we're so glad to to folks who have been listening if you have been listening we have this email address two queers for questions at gmail.com and if you feel impulses to say like this was horrible this was great what about this what are i never understood what is shmini at sarah um feel free to email us uh it would feel nice that this would be a conversation as opposed to us just sort of like rattling on in our yeah that's right any any feedback or questions or ideas two queers four questions at gmail.com i would like to say we you we make no commitment to responding to these emails <laughs> we are doing this podcast completely sort of on a whim we're not certainly not making any money doing it uh or trying to but for both of us i think this is like a a beautiful conversation with each other and with our community whoever that may be um and if you're listening that includes you so uh feel free to talk to us teach us something correct us exactly after the fast um Wishing everyone a happy new year and an easy fast. <laughs>